As you dive into this teaching from High Point Church, we pray that it will help you grow in your faith as you believe in, belong to, and become more like Jesus. If these messages bless you, would you consider giving back in support of this ministry? You can give and learn more about High Point at www.highpoint.church. Well, good morning, High Point family. And to those of you joining us online, uh, good morning as well. Um, Pastor Ron and his dear wife, Jody, they have been very, very good friends. And I want you guys to know how privileged you are to have such a faithful servant like Pastor Ron. And yes, 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 very privileged. He's a pastor of pastors, and um, he's been a great blessing to me and uh, to my family. It's really, really good to be here. We've, had, um, we've been having a wonderful time. But I am ready for God's word. Are you ready for God's word? Uh, I'm kind of filled to overflowing, so hold on. All right? All right. But one of the things I like to do when I preach at the ch- at church for the very first time is to take a picture. Is that okay with you guys? All right, so let's start with this side. If you can just raise your right hand for me. Just raise your right hand. Very good. Very good. Let's try the middle. This middle looks fired, look fired up. Let's, yeah, yeah, okay. You guys look very fired up. Very nice. Okay. Oh, let's see over here. Are you ready? Woo, yeah, I got a whistle on that side. That's excellent. Now I can go back to High Point St. Vincent and tell them that's all the people that got saved when I preached at uh, High Point in Naperville. (laughs) All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll jump into God's word together. Father, we are grateful to you for this time that we can spend studying your word. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. God, I just pray that you would see that your Holy Spirit would take this word and press it into our lives today. Grant us revelation. Take the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Let it be acceptable and pleasing to you in the strong, mighty, and precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Well, if you will turn with me to Acts 21. Acts 21, today we are going to focus on the idea of absolute surrender. And if we are honest with ourselves and others, I doubt that any of us could say that we live our lives in absolute surrender to Jesus Christ. That everything that we think, everything we say, everything we do is all for him and about him. Many of us, we want that to be true. Right? Hopefully we are working to that end to make that happen, to make that a reality. But it is very difficult to say the least. And to help us in this process, this morning we are going to learn from the Apostle Paul's life how to live a surrendered life. Now, loved ones, the Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. But from all accounts, He was 100% surrendered to Jesus. From his life, we learn a surrendered life requires that we possess and demonstrate three things. And here is point number one. You can take a note of this. Display conviction when pressured to compromise. Now, pause with me for a minute. Let me just remind you, let me give you the context of what is happening here. Paul is really wrapping up his third and final missionary journey. 
Paul met with the Ephesian elders in the city of Miletus, and he's meeting with them to bid them farewell. He resumes his trip towards the city of Jerusalem, where he knows, catch this, that imprisonment and affliction awaits him. It is in those circumstances that become the topic of discussion during his brief stay in Tyre. So let's look at verse 4 of chapter 21. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So there's a bit of a problem here, right? Because if you know anything about the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, let me remind you what the apostle Paul said about going to Jerusalem. He said, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Paul isn't going to Jerusalem simply because he wants to go, right? He is going because regardless of the outcome, he believes that God wants him there. He says the word is constrained. It means bound by the Spirit of God to go. He is literally being driven. He's compelled by the Spirit of God to get to Jerusalem. So the question for us all, is the Spirit giving conflicting signals, conflicting messages? Is he telling Paul one thing and telling the believers entire something else? And I do not believe that to be the case. Both are getting the exact same message. Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, there is going to be imprisonment and there is going to be affliction. But what do the believers entire conclude? They conclude, well, Paul, if Jerusalem means pain, if Jerusalem means suffering, well, you ought not to go. Paul, avoid it at all costs. James writes in verse 2 of chapter 1 of his book, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Loved ones, God grows us and uses us, and he does that a lot of times through painful circumstances. Trust me, I know about that. So get this. The Spirit of God is warning Paul of what is, to come into what is to come when he gets to Jerusalem. Not so that he can avoid it, but that he can be prepared for it. The believers entire completely miss that. But the story doesn't stop there. It gets even more fascinating. Check this out in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. You can follow along as I read. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Any single guys here in the house? Would you like to date a prophetess? You go to the door, right, and you knock on the door, and, and um, you're, you're there to take her out on a date, and she's like, oh, no, you're not going. You're, I'm not going with you. Why aren't you going? Well, you have bad intentions. You know what I mean? So, so, so I don't know about you. I wouldn't do it. <laughs> Look at verse 10. 
While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Lord, the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people, were, we, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Here we go again, right? While staying with Philip, by the way, this is the same Philip who in Acts 8 had run to catch the, the um, chariot with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is now an elder in the church in Jerusalem. And Paul is staying with him and his family in Caesarea. And Paul is again warned of what is to come. But this time, it's far more dramatic. Now a prophet Agabus. By the way, who names their child Agabus? You read about Agabus in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. He shows up and he's using Paul's belt as a visual to show what awaits him. <laughs> this is amazing. And how does Paul's companions respond? They respond just like the believers in Tyre, right? Paul, don't go, man. Please stay away from Jerusalem. Paul, avoid it at all costs. And I hope you see what is going on here. Paul is being pressured to compromise. Now, I'm sure these people meant well. They were, they were not only concerned with their, with, with their own well-being, but they were concerned with Paul's well-being. They, they were asking Paul not to do what Paul knows he has to do. But I want you to notice with me something here. Where is the pressure coming from? The pressure isn't coming from outside. The pressure is actually coming from within Paul's circle of influence. The pressure is coming from the believers, pressuring the man of God to compromise. It's coming from within his oikos, within his sphere of influence. But I love how Paul responds in verse 13. Look at this, check this out. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the Lord Jesus. Now, loved ones, that is what I call absolute surrender. Amen? Amen. I hope you see Paul's conviction. Amid the pressure not to do what God wanted, he responds by saying, I am committed to God's will for my life, no matter what the cost. That's absolute surrender. Loved ones, do we face similar situations? As parents, our children come to us and they say, you know what, um, mama, dad, I, I, I want to go on to the mission field. You're like, go on to the mission field? And when, when I say mission field, I'm not talking about the Caribbean. That's how you're thinking, right? But, but yeah, uh, 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 probably some remote place in, uh, you, a remote place in Africa, and you're saying, but 
but, but, but honey, go and study first and go, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer, go be an engineer, not a missionary. But we ought to do what God has called us to do. Sometimes even when it takes us outside of our comfort zones. There was a little boy who was born in a rural village on an island. After this little boy was born, he was diagnosed with a disease called Marasmus. Marasmus is a disease that's directly related to malnutrition. Nobody survived this disease. The doctors told his parents, in a matter of days, three days, your son will be dead. So naturally, very distraught, they bought his burial clothes and they built a coffin for him. But this boy had a praying father. He got down on his knees and he prayed and he said, God, if you save my son, I will surrender him to you. Well, three days turned into three weeks and three weeks turned into three months and three months turned into three years. And to everyone's, uh, I mean, surprise, this boy made a miraculous recovery. At age 12, he committed his life to Christ. At age 17, he went to Bible college. At age 19, he was pastoring his first church. I had the opportunity to sit down with this little boy's father, and I asked him, when you see your son now, what do you see? He said, I see a life absolutely surrendered to Jesus Christ. You see, loved ones, that little boy is my dad. Verrill Alleman Blake, now 53 plus years in full-time Christian ministry. <laughs> Not only is, and by the way, he's an elder at our church, which is pretty cool. Um, not only is my dad a pastor, I have uncles who are pastors. And I pray my son one day will become a pastor. That it will go from generation to generation to generation. My dad has made such an impact around the Caribbean. Not only in St. Vincent and Grenadines, but around the Caribbean with his ministry. Think about it. Who was Paul intent on pleasing? It wasn't his friends, right? He was intent on pleasing Christ. A life, loved ones, of absolute surrender is a life of conviction. Doing what God wants me to do and not being deterred from it. So a life of absolute surrender. Point number one, display conviction when pressured to compromise. No takers, here is point number two. Display constraint when falsely accused. So we're going to get into some stuff here. Are you ready? Look at Acts 21 verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So the apostle Paul arrived in Jerusalem. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders who were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem, and he is gladly and warmly received 
by the believers there. Verse 18 goes ahead and it tells us that on the second day in tongue, he visited the church with the leadership to, to, to kind of just give a report about his ministry to the Gentiles. And while they were enthusiastic, we learn in verse 20 that they also had some concerns. Look at verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of, of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, this is a big problem. There are literally now, loved ones, thousands of Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church. And while they had come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, they still kept the ceremonial aspects of the law. And many of them were upset because someone had started a rumor. Isn't it always someone starting a rumor? Someone had started a rumor that Paul has been teaching the Jews outside of Jer Jerusalem to disregard and forsake the teachings and the traditions described in the Old Testament. This is a big deal. Now, I don't know how many of us here, are, how many of you here might be Jewish. I don't think many of us here are, but I believe we, unless someone is Jewish, will likely miss the severity of the charges against Paul. But trust me, this is a big deal. To them, the Apostle Paul is stripping away their very identity as God's people. So I was like, okay, so what did Paul actually say? So I looked it up. And in Acts chapter 15, here's what Paul told them. After you come to Jesus Christ, abstain from me eating meat sacrificed to idols. Abstain from drinking blood. Abstain from what is strangled. Abstain from sexual immorality. What Paul is saying, loved ones, it's not enough to come to Christ. You have to leave paganism behind. You had some old habits and some old practices and some faulty religion. When you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, leave all of that behind. So let me ask you, are these rumors and accusations true or false? A little of both, right? On one hand, Paul did teach that faith in Jesus Christ, not the keeping of the law, brings someone into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's true. But never did Paul tell the Jews that they had to stop being Jewish in order to be saved. In that respect, the rumors and accusations are blatantly false. So put yourself in Paul's shoes. How would you respond to false accusations being made against you? And I believe that there are three common responses. You can write these down. Here's the first thing that we usually do. We deny. 
I didn't say that. I didn't do that. And the goal of denying is to defend our actions, to, to maintain our good reputation. Then we move from denying, and, and oftentimes we would demand. And that goes something like this. You take it back. You take it back. You go and tell everyone that you talked to that I never said these things. You go and tell everyone you talked to that I never did these things. So we deny and we demand. And then many times we move to number three. We devour. We turn things around. We go on the attack, pointing out the flaws and failures in the person who's accusing us. Who are you to come and tell me how I should do that, that, that I should do this and I should do that? Have you seen your own life? So we deny, we demand, and we devour. You get the idea, right? So often it is easy to respond to false accusations in a sinful way that really doesn't reflect absolute surrender to Christ. One of the things that Debbie and I would have the privilege to do a few times per year is to travel up to the States, many times for ministry. And um, we love, um, sometimes when we have to travel, we have to leave our kids, and we love leaving them with my parents. They love their grandchildren. Any, any grandparents in the house? Yeah, yeah, we, we, we just, they, sometimes when we get them back, we have to defrag them because the grandparents kind of spoil them, but that's the grandparents' job, right? So we, we just love, love leaving them with my parents. They will pour into them spiritually, read God's word to them. It's a great thing. So we made this trip, and I got back, and we got back, and I love putting my kids to bed. So I went to put Matthew to bed, and I said, Matthew, how was the time with granddad and grandma? He said, Dad, it was awesome. We had a wonderful time. So I said, what did you learn? He said, well, I learned something, Dad. He said, I learned that granddad treats grandma better than you treat mommy. <laughs> yeah, that was my reaction, too. I said, what did you say? He said, and he had the audacity to repeat it. He, he said, granddad treats grandma better than you treat mommy. I said, Matthew, what do you mean? He said, well, when granddad comes home, he will go and give grandma a hug and give her a kiss and find out how was her day. When you come home, you open the door and you ask, what's for dinner? And you go and you sit and you watch the news. And then I started to deny and demand and devour. Uh, you, you were wondering who's the parent, right? <laughs> From the mouth of babes, right? Some things have changed in our house since. <laughs> but so often, that is our response. So how did the Apostle Paul Respond. Look at Acts chapter 21, verses 22. He responded in an amazing way. What James and the elders suggest 
is that Paul essentially demonstrates his support for the Jewish law and tradition by joining four men who had taken a Nazarite vow of purity, known, a vow of purity known as the Nazarite vow. They, they told Paul, Paul, if you will join in the purification process, become a part of this process, hopefully it will begin to dispel all of the concerns that these people had about you. So I kind of I looked up, what was this Nazarite vow all about? A Nazarite vow was to symbolize total surrender to God, absolute surrender. Normally, a Nazarite vow was taken for 30 days. They didn't cut their hair. They didn't drink alcohol. They weren't allowed to touch dead people or anything dead. And this was a 30-day kind of vow to just show that they belonged totally to God, to focus on that for 30 days. But there were also some people who took lifetime Nazarite vows. Can you think of any of them? Somebody who, in scripture who took a lifetime Nazarite vow? Anyone? Yes? Samson, yes, very good. Anyone else? Yeah, we, had, we, we know that um, John the Baptist, he took a lifetime Nazarite vow. Samuel took a lifetime Nazarite vow. And we look here in verse 26. By the way, let's give that person a round of applause. Very good, very good. Look at verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each of them. Do you see the Apostle Paul's constraint? Do you see his humility? He doesn't deny. He doesn't debate. He doesn't devour. What he did, he didn't, he, he didn't go on the attack. But what rather his response to these false accusations was doing what he could for peace for the sake of continued ministry. Wow. Do you remember what the Apostle Paul said about his method of ministry in 1 Corinthians 9.20? He said to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. Listen, my, my, my friends and loved ones, that's what I call absolute surrender. Rather than demanding his rights, rather than rising up and defending himself, he willingly laid those things aside for the sake of others. Somebody say amen. Do you see the lessons here for us? If we are going to live lives of absolute surrender, we must be characterized by constraint. We must be characterized by humility, especially when falsely accused. Listen, there is nothing unique about us if we respond and react like the world. But when we remain silent, when we display constraint, who are we like? We are like Jesus, amen? Who when falsely accused, did not defend or even open his mouth. To live in absolute surrender, we must display constraint. But by the way, did it work? Did Paul's display 
of constraint and humility eased the concern and win over the Jews. And if we read in Acts chapter 21, verses 27 through 36, we'll discover that Paul's attempts to make peace failed. As a matter of fact, it kind of got worse. As Paul is accused of taking a Gentile into the temple, and then what did they did? What did they do? They began to beat the apostle Paul. They captured him, and they beat him. And then he was actually then eventually arrested by the Roman soldiers. Let me give you some, some context of what's going, going on here. So they got the apostle Paul. They falsely accused him. And they falsely accusing him again. The crowd got so mad, so <laughs> wild up, that they grabbed the apostle Paul on the streets of Jerusalem and began to beat him to the pulp. Bloodied and bruised and broken, the Roman soldiers heard that there was this big ruckus on the streets of Jerusalem. So they came to investigate what was actually happening. So they're kind of walking their way through the crowd, peeling the people away, and they see this guy on the ground, and they're kicking him, and they're beating him. So they grabbed the apostle Paul, and they arrested him. And they're taking him to the barracks. And that's where we come to point number three. Display courage when faced with opposition. Remember, we are learning from the life of Paul how to live a surrendered life. It takes conviction, loved ones. It requires constraint. And here's the next thing. We must display courage when faced with opposition. So the Apostle Paul is now in custody of the Roman soldiers with the Jews wanting to kill him. Look at what the Apostle Paul does next in verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, that's the guy who's in charge of the Roman soldiers, may I say something? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not an e the Egyptian? Then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the Assyrians out into the wilderness? So the Romans think that Paul is someone else. Look at verse 39. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Do you see Paul's courage here? These people have just beaten him. They would have killed him if the Roman soldiers did not come to intervene. And now the apostle Paul wants to talk to them. Now, I don't know much about you. But as pastoral as I am, if these people had just beaten me, if this, these people had, <laughs> were trying to kill me, I would not have volunteered to go back outside to talk to them, would you? I would be like, get me out of here. Get me as far away from these people as possible. But not the Apostle Paul. He was like, um, Mr. Soldier, sir, can you please permit me, just give me 30 seconds 
to just go back out and address the crowd. Because maybe if it's one person, just one person may hear the good news of Jesus Christ and come to know him as their personal Savior and Lord. No, that's what I call absolute surrender. Why? Because the Apostle Paul had lived a life of surrender to Jesus. And rather than being concerned about his own well-being, he saw this as an opportunity to do ministry. He saw this as an opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ. Woo! Wow! Absolute surrender. Loved ones, a surrendered life requires that we possess and demonstrate three things. We display conviction. We display conviction when pressured to compromise. We display constraint when falsely accused. And we display courage when faced with opposition. Let's pray. Lord, the battle belongs to you. Greater is he who is in us. That's your spirit than he that is in the world. God, greater is your purpose. Greater is your name. Causing us to live victorious Christian lives. Causing us to live surrendered lives. Causing us to have a hunger and a thirst after righteousness and righteous things. So God, will you, will you through the power of your Holy Spirit alone, help us to live lives, victorious Christian lives that brings you glory and brings you honor. And it's in the strong, mighty, and precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen. God bless you all.